We'll open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Lord willing, we'll finish up this chapter today. I've been excited to work through this chapter. I admit that when we began the Gospel of Mark, I was nervous about getting here because it's so dense at one level, and it's also only half of this conversation that Jesus shared uh, that Matthew and Luke record. So Mark really compresses, and he compresses that uh, kind of uh, Cliff's Notes version for us for some specific reasons. Mark chapter 13, we'll be studying this morning, preparation for Christ's return. Preparation for Christ's return. Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and Then he will send forth angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, For you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man who went away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. In case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. American evangelicalism finds itself in a strange time of eschatological confusion and abuse. As we've studied over and over, uh, the, the study of eschatology is the study of the eschaton, which simply means the end of the age or for a Christian, the return of Jesus to the planet, the bodily return of Jesus. He is coming back in his glorified body to redeem his people and be the ruler of this planet. Now, this doctrine of eschatology has suffered abuse and neglect in our generation like really no other generation. Let's think about that for a moment. On the side of abuse, there are the the date setters, the, the, the pop culture theologians who really interpret the Bible in one hand with a newspaper in their other hand, constantly trying to bring them together to make sense. Hollywood has even gotten on board with the whole genre of apocalyptic movies and novels. For these date setters, there is an unhealthy speculation about world events, world leaders, as specific fulfillments of biblical prophecies. And the challenge of that over the ages is everyone who has made that speculation up to today has all, have all been wrong. From these date setters, we get this unhealthy curiosity with, is this him? Is this that? From Hal Lindsey's best-selling book, The Late Great Planet Earth of 1970, I still remember my parents reading that to me. 
to the Left Behind series of 16, is it hard to believe, 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins that became big screen movies. Well, put all that together and speculation has become a theological Rubik's Cube that's become a test for some people for how serious your faith is. But there's another side. On the other hand, there are those who have very little interest in eschatology at all. Some of these people believe we are in the eschaton right now. Jesus is ruling and reigning. And you just want to ask these people if they watch the news. The neglect of this kind of ignoring eschatology can rob a believer of hope It can rob a believer of motivation for holiness. It can rob a believer of evangelistic urgency. And both speculation and neglect damage the health of the church and of a believer by having them err on the periphery of the extremes. In short, I really believe this passage serves our hearts in such significant ways because we need a revival of biblical eschatology that understands Jesus to be the Lord, the King, alive and coming back. James Edwards, whose theology on eschatology I don't completely align with, nor I think would you, still is so helpful. And what he wrote I think is so relevant. This was in my notes before we began seeing rioting around our country. Such a relevant paragraph for what we see happening in our nation this week. But listen to how he stitches the longing of the heart to the need for a proper, good, biblical, well-researched, convictional eschatology. He says this, quote, If we dispense with eschatology, then the purpose and destiny of history fall into the hands of humanity alone. No one, I think, Christian or not, takes solace in that prospect. Unless human history and all of its greatness and potential, as well as its propensity to evil and destructiveness, can be redeemed, human life is futile and a sordid endeavor. The longing, listen to this, the longing that brings ought to be, we know how things ought to be, the longing that brings ought to be into our heart and cannot be allowed to remain as they are, these looking at at our culture, is essentially an eschatological longing. When we look around the world and say it ought not be this way and we want it to be different, that is an eschatological hole in our hearts, Edward says, that must be fulfilled. The grand finale, he goes on, of the gospel preached is by Jesus, gospel preached by Jesus, is that there is a sure hope for the future. It is grounded not in history or logic or intuition, but in the word of Jesus, the statement that in those days humanity will no longer usurp history but relinquish it to its Lord and Maker who will return in glory and justice to condemn evil, condemn suffering, and gather his own to himself, end quote. What a word for today. Hope is not found on the evening news, and it never will be. Hope is found only in our Savior who is alive and well and waiting to return from heaven. Well, let's review the setting real quickly, can we? Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. He's just left um, uh, the gate, uh, dropped through the Kidron Valley, sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples are asking him when this is going to happen, when the stones of the temple will not be left on each other. Jesus says this will not be as it is right now. They are curious. They want a timetable. They want a progression. They want some clues. And he gives them this discourse on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet discourse that Matthew, Luke, and Mark all record. Mark's is the shortest, the most succinct, But it is blisteringly, blisteringly judgmental on the future of the earth that rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. It should not surprise us that this discourse is in Mark's gospel and in Matthew and Luke's gospel right before Jesus is arrested, anointed, arrested, crucified, 
resurrected and ascends to heaven. After Jesus is dead on Friday afternoon, the idea that he would come again would be really important. So he's preparing them, always the pastor, always the shepherd, always the soul caregiver. He's making sure they know what's coming, and they don't. They had no distinction between the first and second coming of Christ. They thought, well, the stones will be overturned. Jesus is going to rebuild the temple, and, and then we'll rule and reign with him. They, they had no category for a first coming and a second coming. But Jesus begins to outline that for them in this discourse. If Jesus is coming again, as this passage says, then he must go away first. And the Lord graciously prepares these men for that departure and that reunion. But eschatology, as everyone would say, can be so confusing, right? There's premillennial and postmillennial and amillennial and pre-tribulational rapture and mid-tribulational rapture and pre-wrath rapture and post-tribulational rapture. There's theonomy, there's replacement theology, there's all of this stuff that comes to bear, and sometimes you just want to throw your hands up and say, how do I make any sense of all of this? This passage, I think rightly understood, gives all of us such secure grip on the coming of the Lord may help dissolve any confusion that you have, not by offering you a timetable, and a chart, but by having you focus on the real meaning of his return. So for our study this morning, we can hear directly from Jesus about his second coming while he was at his first coming. And although you may have a lot of perplexity about the timetable and what happens when, I I want to encourage you that what Jesus is about to explain to us gives us absolute certainty on at least three realities. So to follow along this morning, I want to give you three certain features of Christ's return. There's a lot of questions that people have. Let's be sure about what we are sure about from the very lips of Jesus. Three certain features of Christ's return. And I think if you look at this carefully, the debate about eschatological theories dissolves at one level in our hope. The first is in verse, verses 12, 24 to 27. It will be sure, certain. You can bank on it. It will be sure. Christ will return, in other words. Verse 24, but... In those days, after that tribulation, Jesus is talking about the great tribulation. That time where people will suffer under the the rule of governing authorities, the rule of Satan on this planet. And we noted in the last two studies, really important, that we remember that, that these words in the Olivet Discourse were intended to find interpretation and application for four audiences. This is important. Four audiences would hear this and all find application from their interpretation. The first were Jesus' original listeners, the disciples sitting on the, on the Olivet uh, uh, surface. They, they were the slope, rather. They would be listening and say, what does this have to do with us? Secondly, Mark's original readers, some 20 or 30 years later, would read this. And guess what? They would read it before the fall of Jerusalem. So they would have a certain interpretive grid to look through. A third audience to remember is readers since that time until today. We could say since that time and until the Great Tribulation. That's you and me. That's everyone from AD 70 to up to the, the, the rapture of the church. And then there are readers who will read this in the last time, times, and half time from Daniel 7 and Daniel 12 who will read this passage and Revelation chapters 6 through 19 during the actual great tribulation period, and it will have a very specific application and interpretation for them. There's still relevance for each audience who would have heard this. 
Here in verse 24, multiple references and audience is undeniable. We know that because the disciples who heard this and even some of the first gospel believers who would have read this thought the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 might initiate the end of the world that Jesus predicts in this passage. It didn't. (laughs) The world didn't end in AD 70 or 71. Jesus, watch this, did not return then. And his return is attached to these cataclysms that he predicts. Many throughout church history have thought that they were actually the ones in the great tribulation. And to be frank, there were dimensions of tribulation, dimensions of persecution, dimensions of suffering for countless throughout history. And it would be very hard to tell them that they weren't in a great tribulation. Every time I think of that, I think of Ridley and Latimer standing back to back at Oxford, England with their hands tied and wood around their feet, a fire lit for their belief in the gospel, and to go interview them at that moment and say, do you think you're in the great tribulation? They would have said, nah, that's in the future. I think they had an application for this text that they were suffering and anticipating the return of the Lord, although that wasn't worldwide and it wasn't cataclysmic in the way that Jesus predicts in just a moment. Any honest interpreter can assert that the following descriptions of the coming tribulation have not happened at a global, worldwide scale. So Mark, preparing his readers and every reader since, for the passion account that begins in the next chapter, Jesus' body will be anointed for burial in the next chapter, the next paragraph. Preparing them for his coming death He also prepares them for the accounting of the triumphal re-coming and second coming of his glory. King Jesus will return. Now the Lord describes the events, I think, really at the end of the great tribulation. I'll show you why I think that in a moment. Look at verse 24 in the middle. The sun will be darkened. Now we're talking about astrological uh, phenomenon that the world has never seen. The sun would be darkened. The moon will not give its light. There's going to be pitch black day and night. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in heavens will be shaken. We have to ask an obvious question. What in the world is this talking about? Did this happen in AD 70? And the short answer is no, there is no recording of any astrological, uh, astronomical rather, uh, phenomenon happened where things were falling out of the sky. When the Lord revealed the revelation of the final eschaton to John, he made the same references. Remember, in the book of Revelation, he's sitting on Patmos. Jesus says, take notes. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. This is the resurrected Savior. This is the one who, who is now in the full Trinitarian knowledge of the entire eschaton, not limited by his humanity, which we'll see in just a moment. And listen to what he tells John. Revelation chapter 6, just you can turn there or you can listen. Revelation 6 Verse 12, see how similar this sounds. Remember, this is John looking at what Jesus is revealing to him. John writes, and what's happening is there's a, there's a, 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 a these are seals. The un, uh, unrolling of a scroll, a scroll will be rolled up and to make sure it was properly sealed, every turn they would drop some wax and it would seal and they would roll it again, drop wax and it would seal, drop wax and over and over. And as this scroll is un, unrolled, the seals pop. This is the breaking of the sixth seal. Revelation 6, verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, was darkened. The stars of the sky fell to earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. 
The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Imagine that earthquake worldwide. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, great and the small, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Very similar language from the Lord to John that Jesus gives to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Listen, yes, there have been many times of tribulation on the earth, but there has never been anything that's happened like this. This is one of the most compelling arguments for a premillennial interpretation of eschatology. It seems best to understand that these events will occur in a time of great or greatest tribulation just before Christ returns. Now, dispensational premillennialism, which is what we hold to strongly as a conviction here at, at Mission Road, believes that this to be a seven-year time per Daniel 7.25 and Daniel 12.7 and also Revelation 12.14 that talks about time, times, and half a time. One, two, and, and a half, three and a half years. And the worldwide cataclysmic events occurring during those final three years of the seven, first three and a half, there will be peace, then the Antichrist will come and commit the abomination of desolation himself. Then literally all hell is released onto the planet. And Jesus then speaks that at the end of that time, that great cataclysm at the end of that season, he's going to come back. Notice the term he uses here. He goes from you to they. Verse 26, he's been talking to you, the disciples. Now look at verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming. Isn't it interesting he didn't say you? I think he's subtly saying this is a futuristic event for which you will not be alive, men. Then they, verse 26, will see as all of this cataclysm is happening, the world is melting and dissolving, the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Judgment will come. The heavens will fall. The earth will shake. People will be screaming and begging for life and relief from the judgment of Jesus Christ, and they will know He is the judge. What a contrast this is to the events that, they are, about, that are about to unfold at the end of Jesus' crucifixion. He is about, in just, just a few hours... Two days from now, he will look like an utterly defeated messianic hopeful. And he lets them know, no matter what you see on Friday, that's not the end. Again, John, we have to look to John. He describes this coming of Jesus from Jesus' lips himself. You might want to read this in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, John describes the more detailed look at what Jesus told him on the Mount of Olives and explains to him in detail on the Isle of Patmos in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, John says, Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword 
so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of his fierce wrath of God, God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. It's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. John says, when I then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and men and slaves and small and great. I believe this is speaking of the great battle against God, Armageddon. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Wow. Same Lord, same description, greater details. Back to Mark 13. Jesus, that's just heavy, isn't it? Jesus then describes the simple and gracious fact that when he returns in judgment, true believers, his elect, I think these are those alive at the end of the tribulational period, will not undergo the judgment that is landing and and blaming and judging the entire planet. They will be gathered together from every corner of the planet. Verse 27, then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds. That's all north, south, east, and west. The farthest end of the earth, the most remote jungle, the the man or woman who believed in Christ and the gospel, and the farthest end of heaven, that's talking about the heights, even on top of the mountains to the remotest jungle. The point here is that Jesus is surely returning to earth He may return today. This, I believe, is speaking of his return to fight that battle against his enemies in the flesh. I think 1 Thessalonians 4 says there is a previous meeting in the clouds with believers who he will rapture out of this prior to that great tribulation The question, whether you believe he's coming in the rapture or he's coming in his physical realm to fight on this planet, the question really is irrelevant when it comes to the the answer of, are you ready to meet him? Regardless of your eschatological conviction, if Jesus returns today, are you ready to say, yes, you're my Lord, Yes, I've given you my life. Yes, I believed your gospel. Yes, I'll come home with you. That brings us to a second feature of Christ's return we can be sure about. Not only will it be sure, number two, it will be soon. It will be soon. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. Jesus and fig trees. This isn't interesting. He keeps talking about fig trees. Learn the parable from the fig tree when its branches, branch has already become tender, puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. Jesus now gives them a simple parable and a command to understand its application and its lesson. You'll remember that the day before this moment, he also used a fig tree as an illustration, but making a completely different point. In chapter 11, verses 12 to 14, he cursed the fig tree, came back overnight, and what had happened? It had died, and that became a living illustration for temple worship and false Judaism, which was looking at salvation as being 
anchored in personal works and loyalty to wicked leaders, not in Him and His forgiveness of sins, His graciousness, Him as the Messiah. That fig tree had, no, had leaves but no fruit, which Jesus used as an illustration, again, of the apostasy of Israel. He cursed it, dies overnight. Here, however, it's an illustration of how a fig tree simply indicates the seasons. You can tell, boy, living in Kansas City, we can always tell what season it is by looking at the leaves, right? Looking at trees. You know it's summer when they're in full bloom. You know it's fall when they are falling off. You know, it's winter when there are no leaves. You'll know it's spring when there are buds on the trees. The point is, you can tell what season it is by looking at a tree. Jesus used that deciduous illustration to talk about the change that comes to trees in the seasons. Jesus is speaking to these men when? It's probably April. This is the springtime. All around them would have been evidence of this truth with little green buds on most of the trees. He says, you know summer is near. He's in the spring. You know summer is near when the branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. It's not a hard illustration to understand. But what does it illustrate? Verse 30, verse 29. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, like you look at a tree that's budding and summer's coming, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door, right at the door. Just as we see in the spring, I have these, these giant pin oaks in my, in my front yard, which are beautiful in the, in the uh, spring and in the summer and And then my yard is not beautiful in the fall when they start getting rid of their leaves. But I can watch the changing of the seasons by watching those pin oaks. They've never failed. Just as we can see a tree indicates the season, Jesus says when you see these signs, and I think specifically he's talking to those at the end of the tribulation, when you see these worldwide cataclysmic events, Occurring, you will know he's right at the door. He's right at the door. I was expecting a package this week. And um, I uh, knew it was coming and I get these little indications on my phone. I don't know how I ever turned that on. But it tells me how many stops things are away and when it's there. And it's about to be, it's, it's really, it really freaks me out a little bit. But I, I got this indication that something had been delivered. Well, I went to the door to get it. And when I opened the door, the, the guy had probably put the delivery in before he put the package down. And when I opened the door, he was standing there, and I didn't know he was standing there. And he didn't know I was opening the door, and we both had a pretty good fright. It was, it was just, ah, you're... And I thought, I was studying this passage that week and thought, that's it. He's right at the door. I opened the door and didn't expect that he was right there. When you start seeing, I think specifically at the end of the tribulation, when you see these things happening, he is right at the door. Where those will look for his second coming physically on the planet, though, you and I should look for his next coming which is redeeming those through taking us away in what is commonly called a rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. He's right at that door as well. A question on the minds of the disciples was related to the destruction of the temple that Jesus had predicted, but Mark chapter 13, verse 4, tell us when these things are to be, they said. What will be the sign for these things? Jesus details these things and moves beyond the destruction of the temple all the way to the end of the age. If Jesus intended to mean that that generation right then would see that happen, then we have some problems. Look at verse 30. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This has caused such alarms to go off in so many theological minds. But can I just share with you, it's not that hard to figure out. Was he talking about the generation alive then? Quick answer, no, he didn't come back then. So what's he talking about? He's talking about a context when all of these things take place, these things in the future, to talk about these things in the future, and then to point to this generation in the future makes perfectly grammatical sense. Perfect grammatical sense. If you're going to say that, you have to use good grammar when you say that. He's talking about the generation alive at that time. It cannot be a reference to the twelve. It cannot be a reference to the Jewish people that lived during the first century because all of these things that happen are associated with not just what's happening but with Jesus returning. And if you want to say that was then, then guess what? Jesus has returned and I guess we just die and go see him. Global cataclysms described in the astronomical phenomenon that he discusses, did not happen then. Yes, the Jews did witness the destruction of the temple 40 years later, A.D. 70, but the events described about the Great Tribulation of Revelation 6, chapter 6 through chapter 19, did not happen. Real simple. Even more important, let me, I cannot stress it enough, Jesus did not return in A.D. 70. This is all stitched together. So I think it really puts an end to this, this view called preterism, which that says that everything Jesus was describing was just talking about the destruction of the temple. It's best to understand those events and the generation that will be alive when they occur are yet in the future. Still, we should believe that he is waiting for nothing except his own prerogative to return Salvation and in judgment. It will be sure his return will be. It will be soon. Thirdly, it will be sudden. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Jesus prophesies that the earth and the atmosphere as we know it will be completely destroyed and reworked in judgment. Look at 2 Peter for a minute. Flip over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3.10. Actually, let's back up from 2 Peter 3.10 to 2 Peter 3.3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. You know what they're going to say? You ready for it? Where is the promise of Jesus coming. For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water, the great flood. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. That's what he's just been describing. That's what he describes in Revelation 6 through 19. Kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. What fact? Beloved, that with the Lord, one day, like a thousand years. A thousand years, like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise. As some count slowness, some would say, well, it's been, you know, 2,000 years. That's, is he going to come? 
He's patient toward you. That's why he hasn't come. He is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. We just said it would be soon. How can we say it would be soon for them? How can we say it would be soon for those in the 15th and 16th century? How can we say it would be soon for us if it just keeps going on? Well, God's timing is not like ours. It's not uniformitarianism where everything just keeps going like it has been going. The earth will pass away on his timetable, and he's not delaying. The end of verse 31 gives assurance that no matter what happens, how bad it gets, the word and promises of Christ, however, will remain. What a great promise. No matter how bad things get in their world or in ours, no matter how, th- how bad things look in our own lives, his word will never fade. Just a little study quick aside on the deity of Christ. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Jesus is saying, that's true, but my word stands forever, thus clearly claiming to be who? God. A clear claim to his deity. Verse 32, but of that day or hour, his return, no one knows. This is interesting. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. This has caused other people to have a lot of heartburn. What, what is he talking about? Is, is this a real, really a, a, a separation of divine wills? There's a big debate in, in theological circles today about does God have one will or multiple wills? Does the Son have a will and not my will but your be done? Does the Son have a knowledge that he doesn't know about but God the Father does? That's just speculative speculatively unnecessary what does it mean that no one knows when he's returning he doesn't even know well the fact that Jesus says he doesn't know is not a denial that he doesn't know now I think very simply he was he had put himself in the incarnation in a self imposed restraint he had occupied physical space the omnipresent God was in one place at one time he actually put many restraints on himself by his own humanity and he's not saying I don't know to create some theological quagmire he's saying The sun doesn't know. The angels don't know. So how are you going to know? You won't know, but you will know the timing. And that's exactly what he talks about next. Take heed, verse 33. Keep on the alert. Remember that phrase. He's going to use it three times in five verses. Keep on the alert. Stay alive. Look up. Heads up. For you do not know when the appointed time will come. Verse 33, 35, and 37, he says, keep on the alert, be alert, be alert. It is this very reason that we do not know when Jesus is returning, that we must always be on the alert. You better believe, when I opened the door the rest of that day, I looked twice to see if someone was there. I don't want to be spooked or scared again. In a strange parallel, We should be ready for the Lord's standing at the door, coming in judgment and in reward for his beloved children every day, every hour, every moment. I like the way John MacArthur put it. He says, although its timing is fixed in the Father's plan, Acts 1-7, The Lord's categorical statement that he doesn't know when he's coming excluded the possibility that anyone could accurately predict his return. The definitive and exhaustive nature of Jesus' statement indicates that all who would presumptuously set a date for the second coming are either being delusional or intentionally deceptive, especially 
if the events of the tribulation have not begun, end quote. We've just seen in our, in our part of the vineyard, in our camp theologically, we've seen so many people spend so much energy trying to talk about all that's going to happen during the tribulation. And if you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, guess what? You're not going to be here. Let's spend time being faithful in the moment. Jesus, the master teacher, gives another illustration in verse 34. It's like a man... Away on a journey. He leaves, upon leaving, he leaves his house, putting his slaves in charge. There was no security system he couldn't turn on. He had to leave people in charge, house-sitting, his slaves in charge of doing all of the, the, uh, the overseeing of his, of his uh, assets and his property. Assigning each of these slaves a task, also commanding the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. You know who the, door pe- the doorkeeper was and what he was there for? He had one job. See who's coming to the house. This verse verse speaks of Jesus leaving the stewardship of the gospel to disciples, to you, to me, to those even at the end of the age, playing a role, all imitating the watchfulness of the doorkeeper. Therefore, verse 35, be on the alert. We hear it again. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming. And now he just gets really comprehensive. Whether it's evening, he can come at night. At midnight, he'd come in the middle of the night when the roaster crows right before dawn or in the morning when the daylight comes up in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. This is not just talking about being asleep at midnight. I think it's okay to be asleep at midnight. It's being asleep by not being faithful to the duty that he has left us with in the stewardship. I think it's primarily aimed at those who are alive during the Great Tribulation, but the principle still applies that we today should remain vigilant in our looking for Jesus' return. And then verse 37, what I say to you, think about this, disciples, I say to all, that's including you and me, be on the alert. Verse 37 is hermeneutically and applicationally significant because Jesus casts the net of application to us all. It is to every believer in every age, be on the alert. All the events described in this discourse, desolation, astrological cataclysms, persecution, are signs that the time is near. They indicate the season, but not the exact hour. In the parallel account, Luke records that Jesus said this in addition to what he says in Mark. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come upon you like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that, you are, about, that are about to take place. And listen, to stand before the Son of Man. It's the same application in every age to every person. Be ready to stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus, and the only way we do that with protection and integrity is to receive and believe the gospel. A thousand years to Jesus, like one day. One day, like a thousand years. He doesn't count time or slowness as you and I do. The point that Peter's making is don't be lulled to sleep like the culture who said, well, he hasn't come by now. He's not coming at all. A couple takeaways, can I? First of all, speculating and obsessing about the end times is not a sign of faithfulness, rather a sign of distraction. We should believe it. We should study it, we should apply it, but if it makes us fearful and makes us read the the newspaper and our internet and watch the news, all trying to plug those events into the Bible, we've missed the point. We're not trying to 
solve the Rubik's Cube of these events, we're looking for the return of Jesus no matter what. A second takeaway, the worse the world becomes, the more we should look for Jesus' return in every generation. The worse the world becomes, is that not a word for us in this week? The worse the world becomes, the more we should look for Jesus' return. And as I've said multiple times today, all of life, thirdly, all of life should be lived in anticipation of meeting Jesus. He is coming back. And by the way, he's angry. Rightfully so. We can be protected from that rightful wrath by believing the good news of the gospel. John would say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him at his coming. Guard yourself from fanaticism, from skepticism, from speculation. Be watchful, be alert, and wait. One of my sons had a really hard time with me going on ministry trips when, I was, when he was younger. He was four or five, and it was... It was pretty traumatic when he knew that dad was going to go away and I wouldn't be back in an hour or a day. It sometimes was two or three weeks on missions trips. And to be honest, it, was, it, was, it ripped my heart out to see him as I was leaving, just melting down in emotion. I remember one particular time I was going to South Africa for almost three weeks He was crying, he was holding me, he was distraught. Please don't leave, Dad, please don't leave. And my heart is pounding out of my chest. You know what I said over and over and over again? Son, Dad will be back. Dad will be back. You don't have to worry, Dad will be back. We are people who look at a world dissolving before our eyes and we need to remember Jesus saying I'll be back I'll be back I'll be back Revelation 22 verse 20 yes I am coming amen John says come Lord Jesus Jesus